We're looking at uh, Luke chapter 2, and uh, God speaks it to us. Let's ask uh, him to open our minds and hearts uh, to his truth. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you that you do speak this word uh, to us. Uh, Thank you that you speak concerning your Son. Please do, uh, by your Spirit, uh, help us to hear and understand, uh, to see Jesus more clearly, and see more clearly who he is and what he's done, and uh, to continually cast ourselves uh, upon him and to be in wonder at uh, what he has done for us. Through him, amen. I love a bargain. I've probably told you before I love a bargain. Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, I was watching my inbox for Black Friday deals, uh, to uh, see what would would turn up. Mostly, I was disappointed. Mostly, uh, but uh, you know, the, most of the deals they just didn't do it for me. Uh, deep discounts on things that I wasn't interested in, and uh, virtually no discount on things I was interested in. Of course, all the announcements as they arrived into my into my inbox, it was like they are the best news ever. Uh, maybe for someone somewhere in internet world, they were but just not for me. The songs we sing say Jesus' birth is good news. The angel in the story said Jesus' birth is good news. How do you hear the news? Is it good news for you? Do you kind of nod inside as you almost nod off? Uh, Yep, it's good news for someone somewhere. Or is your head at heart gripped by the goodness? Or does your head agree, yes, it's good news, but your heart feels less gripped? Is it good news for you? In some ways, the good news about Jesus wasn't uh, new when he was born. It's good news that God had announced for centuries and centuries through his Old Testament prophets But after his birth, the first people to hear the news announced to them were shepherds. God sent angels from heaven to tell them the good news. As we listen to this story, how do you hear it? Is it good news for you? Luke chapter 2 shows us an unlikely king. Uh, Then it shows us that he is the king who saves uh, verses 1 to 7 will show us that he is an unlikely king. Uh, he comes in contrast to an almost all-powerful king. Uh, we see that king first. Verse 2 mentions him, Caesar Augustus, with all the power of the Roman Empire behind him. For centuries, Israelites had been obeying kings of other nations. Superpower king after superpower king after superpower king had conquered. Israel was ruled by the Babylonian king until the Medo-Persian king conquered him, until the Greek king conquered him, until the Roman king conquered him. So when Jesus was born, Israelites were obeying Caesar Augustus, the king of Rome. He was almost all-powerful. His rule and influence stretched all the way around the Mediterranean. He ruled what we think of as Spain, France, Italy, Croatia, Albania, Greece, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Egypt, Libya, Algeria, Morocco. 
and a good chunk of territory beyond that as well. He ruled all of it and all of its people. He taxed them, and that's probably why he wanted to count them so he knew how much tax to require. So he decided to count the people he ruled. Well, he decided to get other people to count the people he ruled. He ordered a census. And when the almost all-powerful king of the Roman Empire commanded a count, everyone obeyed. Uh, Someone told Quirinius, uh, the governor of the area Syria, uh, what to do, and he told his local enforcers what to do, and they made sure that everyone did what they were told. Everyone went to their hometown to be registered. Verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. That's a three-day journey, and it's from backwater to backwater. There's another slide. That tiny corner of the Roman Empire, insignificant spot to insignificant spot. Because Joseph and Mary were part of a conquered people, they did what they were told by the local enforcer of the governor in obedience to the almost all-powerful king of Rome. But their obedience has taken them to Bethlehem because Joseph is of the house and lineage of David. He is a descendant of Israel's great king, David. Now, this isn't the first time David is mentioned in Luke's gospel. Uh, The one I want to point you to is back in uh, chapter 1, verses 27 to 33. Uh, Luke mentioned David back in chapter 1. Uh, when he introduced us to Mary and told us what to expect from her baby. So in chapter 1, verse 27, uh, Mary uh, was an unmarried virgin. Uh, She's promised to marry Joseph um, off the house of David. And an angel appears to her and says, chapter 1, verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So here, look look at it. Uh, Luke mentions in chapter 1 all of this so that when we get to Jesus' birth, we'll know who's being born. So when we, when we look at this in chapter 1, we, we, we know, we remember this from chapter 1, we know that when we see Mary's son, that is Mary's son who she is to call Jesus, the one who will be great, the one who will be called son of the Most High, the son of God, the descendant of David who will rule forever, the, the king whose kingdom will never be conquered. Here is the descendant God promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here is the king Sam 2 speaks about, the descendant of David who God calls his son, the the king whose rule will never end because he will never be conquered. So chapter 1 has us expecting Mary's son to be king of the world, a far, far greater king than the almost all-powerful king of Rome who happens to be ruling his kingdom until that kingdom is conquered. So chapter 2, verse 4 reminds us of all of that. It reminds us that Mary's child is that king. Luke reminds us by slowing down to say, they're going to Bethlehem, it's David's city, 
because Joseph is of the house and lineage of David. It's a signpost saying, yes, here he is. This one is the one the angel spoke to Mary about. He's the great one. He's the son of the Most High. He's the descendant of David who will rule forever. He's the king whose kingdom will never be conquered. Jesus is far, far greater than the almost all-powerful king of Rome. Then we see him. Which shows us this greater king. And he seems an unlikely king. There's no hint of wealth. There's no royal treatment. Mary and Joseph arrive into, into Bethlehem in verse 6. Uh, while they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth. The baby is born and nothing looks royal. Verse 7, Mary wraps him in swaddling cloths and lays him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. We hadn't heard the story before. It's not how we would expect that great king to arrive. He's not in a house, let alone a palace. There's no royal bassinet. He sleeps in a manger, which kind of sounds cute, but he's actually sleeping in a box which animals normally eat out of. He doesn't look royal, wrapped in scraps of cloth and sleeping in a box animals usually eat from. Just a baby born into a poor family at the edge of an enemy empire. He's an unlikely king. But he is the king God promised. And verse 8, Luke pulls back. The, the, the camera pulls back from the feeding trough and goes out of the building and out of Bethlehem and across to a paddock. And in the paddock we see sheep, and with the sheep we see shepherds. And the shepherds are guarding that, that flock against wild animals through the night. Luke brings us here to show us that the baby wrapped in scraps of cloth and lying in a, sleeping in a box animals usually feed from, that baby is the king who saves while shepherds guard their flock, the angel of the Lord appears to them, the shepherds. And verse 9, the glory of the Lord shines around them, and they are filled with fear. The angel brings with him some sense of God's glory. And the shepherds have an awesome appreciation of the all-surpassing greatness of God. They glimpse Yahweh's splendor. They realize that they're not ready to meet him. Filled with fear. In the Old Testament, that's what happens when people glimpse God's glory. I think a helpful verse to look at is Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. After Isaiah glimpses God's glory, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah fears judgment. He knows he deserves judgment. He might have thought he was better than other people before he saw God's glory. But seeing God's glory, he knows he deserves to be condemned. He quakes with fear. When these shepherds glimpse God's glory, they see that they deserve judgment and condemnation. They realize they're not ready to meet the living, true, and holy God. They fear. But the angel calms them. Verse 10, he speaks God's message. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David 
a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This message is good news. It's good news that brings great joy. The shepherds are hearing it first, but it's for all the people. The good news that brings great joy centers on that baby. The one wrapped in scraps of cloth and sleeping in a box animals normally feed from. But why is it such good news? Well, the angel explains in verse 11. The baby is a saviour. He is Christ. He is the Lord. Reading and rereading Luke's gospel and reading in the context of the promises through the prophets, those words get loaded with meaning. Saviour, Christ, Lord. Jesus is saviour. He is the only saviour. Only he can rescue from the punishment we deserve for the damage and dishonor we do. Uh, we mess up the world we live in. Uh, we, we leave scars in the lives of people, we t- of people whose lives we touch. We mess up our own lives. And all the damage we do dishonors God who gives us life. Because we do that damage in disobedience to him. And our, dis- our disobedience screams Life would be better if you were not God. Jesus is the only Savior who can rescue us from the punishment we deserve for all the damage and dishonor we've done. Jesus is Savior and he is Christ. Uh, Here's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. Both mean the anointed one, the chosen Jesus is God's chosen, God's promised king. Uh, We talked about this a a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Psalm 2. Jesus is the the good and perfect ruler. His rule is eternal, so his people are safe with him. No authority, no power, uh, not even the the almost all-powerful king of Rome can oppose God's Christ. His rule is good and his care is complete. The only safe thing is to treat him as king. Jesus is Savior and Christ, and he is Lord. Now, at the very least, the angel is saying Jesus is master, ruler. But I'm confident he's saying more than that. And that Luke intends us to hear more than that as we read and reread his gospel. For instance, in chapter 3, uh, when Luke quotes the Old Testament to show us uh, John the Baptist as the one who goes ahead and prepares the way for the Lord Yahweh, he then shows us who comes after John the Baptist. And it's Jesus. John the Baptist prepares the way for the Lord Yahweh, and Jesus is the one who comes next. Luke helps us see that Jesus really is the Lord Yahweh, Come in flesh. Now, there are things that Christians claim that are hard to believe. Uh, Why is one death on a cross enough to save millions? How could the biology of death be undone in resurrection? How could Jesus ignore the physics of gravity and buoyancy and walk on water? Or make 
matter multiply and feed thousands. Yeah, there are things Christians claim which are hard to believe. But in his chapter on the Incarnation in a wonderful book, Knowing God, um, J.I. Packer uh, said that yeah, people make faith harder than it needs to be by finding difficulties in the wrong places. The Incarnation truly is hard to believe. I'll read a quote. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a genuine human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation. But Parker isn't saying it's made-up fiction. He's saying we, we can't get our minds around, around it. But beginning to grasp what it is dissolves the other difficulties. So if Jesus is no more than a remarkable human, all the hard-to-believe aspects of, the, of Christian teaching remain hard if they don't become impossible. But if Jesus is the eternal God come in flesh, the difficulties dissolve. The surprise is that he died rather than that he rose. The surprise is that he died rather than the enormous significance of his death, what it accomplishes. Of course, the one who makes what we observe as physics happen, well, he can do things differently. As Packer puts it, once we grant, once we accept that Jesus was divine, it becomes unreasonable to put, to find difficulty in any of this. It is all of a piece and hangs together completely. The incarnation is in itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. See what he's saying? He's basically saying that the bits and pieces fit together. Things we can think of as impossible or unexplainable are kind of almost expected once you grasp that Jesus is God come in the flesh. This is helpful for us, I think. It's helpful for us as we think through what we believe and understand. It's helpful for us as we explain what we believe and understand uh, to friends who find Christian claims difficult, uh, whether it's the miraculous or moral that they're tri tripping over. It's helpful to realize that all the pieces fit. The pieces are difficult and that they don't fit uh, with other assumptions, but they do fit together and they do fit the world we live in. It's a world where, as verse 11 says, Jesus is Savior, Christ, and Lord. He saves from sin and judgment. He has all authority. He is God come in flesh. Before the, David, the shepherds uh, make a move towards David's city, uh, a whole crowd of the heavenly army show up 
uh, singing the greatness of God the Father. Verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This child comes because God sent him. So God in heaven is honored. And Christ's coming brings peace. Not quite peace, world peace. Peace among those with whom God is pleased. Who's God pleased with? Well, Psalm, Psalm 2 says it's those who kiss the Son. As you read on in Luke and Acts, you hear the same answer. It's those who come in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. Those who come trusting Him as Savior and Lord. It's men, women, and children who trust Jesus as rescuer and ruler. They get to enjoy the peace and rescue and deliverance He brings. Luke continues on as the angels leave and we follow the shepherds down into Bethlehem to to that box and the baby in it, exactly as the angels told them to expect. And for the first of what must have been many times, they tell the story of what happened out in the fields and what the angels said. Verse 17. I wonder as I read this whether they told Luke when he was doing his research for this gospel. But verse 18, all who heard them when they first told it, they wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondering, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Everyone was amazed. Mary treasured the th- and thought about it, and the shepherds glorified and praised God. As I just said, what the angel spoke about Jesus fully fits what we see about him as we read on in Luke and Acts and the rest of the New Testament. Luke shows us that Jesus is Lord Yahweh. We see it in the authority he teaches with, in the miracles he does, uh, which though they are his actions, are, are, are acts of God. We even see it in his authority to send forth the Holy Spirit. Luke shows us that Jesus is the Christ, come to fulfill God's great promises. We see that he's Christ as the angel, as the disciples recognize him. We see that he's Christ as God in heaven says, this is my son. Luke shows us that Jesus is Savior, that he's come to rescue and deliver men, women, and children from the punishment we deserve for the damage and dishonor we've done as he goes to the cross for us. The angels announced his birth, and they announced it as very, very good news. I said as we began, I love a bargain. Part of the, as I said as we, we began, I love a bargain. Part of the good news of commercial Christmas, Christmas is the Boxing Day bargains. Uh, those uh, bargains, well, again, they're only good news if you want to buy what they're selling. They're only good news if they're selling and... You want to buy it, and you can afford to buy what they're selling. And even then, the goodness of getting it doesn't last all that long. The really good news of Christmas is the good news about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I asked earlier, is it good news for you? Is it good news your head recognizes? Is it good news your heart experiences? Well, it is good news. 
it is good news for you if you've heard it and turned in trust. It's the best of good news if you're already relying on Jesus for forgiveness and submitting to him as your loving Lord. And hearing it again is a reminder to be amazed at what God has done. To treasure it and to let it soak into your heart. To give glory to God for the great salvation that he has brought in his Son. It's a reminder to be amazed that the eternal Son humbled himself. Became that baby. Went to death. To enjoy the goodness of knowing that you're saved by the Savior. To rejoice in what he has done and what you have in him. To be glad that he has bought you out from under sin and death and judgment and brought you into his kingdom where you know his father as your father. It's a reminder to be glad. It's a reminder to share. The gospel isn't like one of those eBay bargains uh, where there are only two left and there are 253 watchers and you're one of them. You know, two people are going to get a bargain and 251 are going to learn to live with disappointment. It's more like a free download where anyone and everyone can get it and there's no limit on how many people get it. Everyone who wants it can have it. And you don't lose out by sharing and saying, hey, grab this. Actually, you gain because you'll get to see your friends and family amazed and treasuring and soaking in the goodness of knowing Jesus and giving glory to God and enjoying the goodness of knowing they're saved by the Savior. You don't lose out by sharing because you get to see them rejoicing in what Jesus has done and what they have in him. Being glad that he has brought them out from under sin and death and judgment And he has brought them into his kingdom where they know his father as their heavenly father. Hearing the good news is a reminder to share. If you're one of those people who we're sharing it with and you're just beginning to say that it's good, that it's good news and good news for you, are you ready to go all in? Are you ready to step inside and experience the good news as good news for you? Today's a great day. Great day to turn in trust to Jesus as Savior. To trust him for forgiveness, to trust him as your good and loving Lord. Realizing that you haven't been going all in because you've been suspicious it's not good. But now's the time. Do talk to us today. Do do it today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wonderful good news that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. Father, please do open all of our eyes uh, to the goodness of what he has done and accomplished, the goodness of what he and you offer uh, through what he has done and is doing. Father, please do 
strengthen our confidence in the truth and goodness of the gospel. Please expand our recognition and our experience yeah, of trusting that it genuinely is good as you speak it, the gospel to us and of knowing that what you say is true, what you've done is good, that you'll complete what you've promised. Through your Son, Amen.